The global prevalence of obesity has tripled since the mid-1970s. Obesity increases the risk of a range of medical conditions, including cancer, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. Major investments have been made in efforts to address obesity, but there are ongoing challenges in implementing programs, determining what combination of strategies will be most effective, and tackling racial and ethnic disparities. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Shariki Kumanyika, a research professor at the Drexel University Dorenseif School of Public Health. As part of the journal series in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academy of Medicine, Dr. Kumanyika has co-authored a perspective article about efforts to address rising obesity rates, both in the United States and globally. Dr. Kumanyika, you write in your perspective article that hunger, not obesity, dominated the U.S. nutrition policy agenda through the 1960s. So when and why did obesity become a focus of the public health community? In 1969, there was a White House conference on food nutrition that focused largely on hunger, but obesity was mentioned there. Obesity became a major concern when it became clear that the rates were going up, the prevalence of obesity was going up. And it was partly facilitated by having really unimpeachable data from the National Health Survey that measured height and weight. And when they started the nutrition component of that survey, there was more attention to monitoring the weight levels. And in about 1995, we saw the rates going up. And they've been going up ever since, unfortunately. But I think it was the rates going up that made it a public health concern, which was highlighted by the CDC when someone had the idea of making what we now call heat maps to show the prevalence of obesity across the U.S. states and how many states had more than 20% of the population with obesity. Now they're still making the maps, but it shows that many states have more than 35% of the population with obesity. So here we are several decades later, and as you say, the rates are still rising, and they continue to be higher in the United States than in comparable countries around the world. Why do you think that is? It's hard to say why the rates are higher in the U.S. The point that's really more important is probably that they're going up everywhere. The rates are, are projected to keep rising. The reasons could be the characteristics of society that drive obesity, which are the ability to get healthy food, how much people are active, and some of the norms and ideas about behavior. Another thing is that other countries may have different levels of control or different rules about what kinds of food and food marketing can come into a country so that these things may be more in the extreme in the U.S. than they are in some countries. But even just physical activity, a lot of the older cities are much more walkable, less car dependent than the U.S. But I think the problem, whatever level there was, it's going up. And so to curb the epidemic, we need to see what's going on that's happening in so many different places to create larger and larger proportions of the population with obesity. So you say in your article that obesity and related aspects of nutrition policy have been the topic of more than 40 consensus studies and workshop reports from the National Academy of Medicine. How have the recommendations from those reports influenced obesity policy in the United States? A couple of those reports have been really, really influential in federal policy. The ones that have to do with the Women, Infants, and Children uh, program, WIC, and the ones that have to do with the quality of school meals. 
And that's a real win, I think, for those IOM reports because the programs were already in place. They reached large percentages of U.S. children on a daily basis or for the WIC population for a really critical period of growth and development during infancy and early childhood. And the standards for those programs have now changed to match what was recommended in these reports of what was then called the sort of medicine for even in that WIC program, giving much healthier foods. Initially, these programs were all commodity programs and the foods were chosen because they were surplus commodities. And now they are really nutrition programs in terms of what's given. And that's because of some of the guidance that came out from the IOM reports. Have those changes in policy had a meaningful effect on obesity rates or on other health or socioeconomic outcomes? These types of programs take a long time to work. So there are a couple of things. One is that they're only one aspect of what needs to be changed. So you wouldn't want to put the onus on any one program to turn the epidemic around, of course. And they take a long time to work because they need to be implemented and normalized and really reached large proportions of the population for you to see it, especially in national data, but also in some cases in state data. But the other thing that makes it difficult to tell is that you can't randomize children to receive these programs. <laughs> so you have to find a sort of clever research design that will tell you if the children who have been exposed to these programs over different cohorts of children over time are actually better off in terms of their weight control. That said, some studies are coming out now, which is about 10 years after the implementation of these changes began, that it looks like these children, and it's maybe the low-income children in particular, are benefiting from these programs in terms of having a healthier weight. So yes, over time, and with enough scale, these programs seem to be having the desired effect. You also talk in your article about disparities in obesity status according to race, ethnic group, and income. Have any of the policies or programs shown promise for reducing those kinds of gaps? The programs that reach young children are showing some promise there. The WIC program reaches children from birth. And the only place where we're not seeing a rise in the latest data is in the youngest children. So the zero to two and two to five, it's high enough. I mean, it's too high, 12%, I think, in the two to fives. But it's not rising. It is still rising in 6 to 11 and 12 to 19-year-old youth. Because these are federal programs, you know, safety net programs, they reach the children who are most in need. And so that's very, you know, economically. And a lot of these children are in minority populations. So that's really good news if it holds. Now, as these children become 6 to 11, <laughs> they're now 2 to 5 we might see that the obesity has sort of caught up with that particular group. But right now, that could be a sign that starting as early as possible is actually going to have a good effect on the children who are reached by those programs. Finally, you mentioned the syndemic framework, which considers obesity, undernutrition, and climate change as interacting pandemics that have adverse effects on each other. How is that framework helpful when thinking about what changes we're going to have to make to reverse these trends in the prevalence of obesity? That's probably the most important question we can ask right now. I'm glad you asked it. All the things we're doing now, even if we really strengthen them and make them work as well as possible, and even if we scale them up and have them 
operating in the same place so that a group of children or families get all of the things in the package that's needed to help with healthy development and weight control. It probably, at best, I think we would hope to hold the line because the drivers of obesity are deeply embedded in society. It's unfortunate. We wish we could treat our way out of it, but we can't or that a small program would do it. They're really societally embedded. We have now the privileges of abundant food and convenient food and motorized transportation and so forth. And when you look at these things and what would society look like without these things, we're not turning back the clock. This has been a big problem in the obesity field. We're not going to give up our washing machines and so forth. But we have to find a way to create a society in which people are really not at risk of increasingly high rates of chronic disease because of these forces in society. I don't know what the answer is, but the reason that I mentioned this endemic is that the Lancet Commission on Obesity, and I was a member of that commission, we thought about this for a long time and said, okay, we can't write just another obesity report because we know what to do. People agree, okay, we have to fix this. We have to fix the food. We have to fix the built environment and so forth. We have to fix food marketing and all these other forces that just are helping to increase the rates. But it turns out that when we thought about climate change and undernutrition, what we saw was that these are all pandemic level forces in societies, not just in the U.S., but across the globe. And many of them have the same types of causes the way things are produced, the way food is produced, and so forth, transport. And they are mutually reinforcing in certain ways so that if you were to address climate change, you would inadvertently do some things that are good for weight control. And if you were to address food system issues that will help take care of global undernutrition or food insecurity in this country, then that would also help with weight control because the food supply would be different. And climate change and food systems are very closely related. So that's why we mentioned this. We probably have to stop thinking about just fixing obesity, partly because that brings up a doctor's office and a scale and a diet in people's minds. And we're not talking about that at all. It's treatment is needed, but that's not going to solve the problem. But we really have to think this is more like a symptom of a bigger societal problem. And what other big societal problems do we have? And when we begin to move on these things to create what will have to be a societal transformation, that's when we're going to see some differences. And so people are talking that way now. We have the sustainable development goals from the United Nations trying to make climate change, chronic disease, all these things stirred up together as societal problems and then see if we can come to solutions that over generations will move things to a different place. Thank you, Dr. Kuranika.